The eyes of a psychopath will deceive you. They will destroy you. They will take from you your innocence, your pride, and eventually your soul. Dr. Samuel Loomis Devil's Dorp, the podcast, is a killer audio creations production in partnership with Showmax for the Showmax original documentary series, Devil's Dorp. This podcast may contain graphic information related to the crimes committed by the perpetrators. Sensitive listeners should take this into consideration. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Killer Audio Creations, Showmax, or their partners. Welcome back to Devil's Dorp, the official companion podcast. If you missed episode one of the podcast, or if you haven't yet watched the Showmax original documentary Devil's Dorp, I highly recommend you do that first. My name is Nicole Engelbrecht, true crime podcaster, freelance writer, and audiobook narrator, and I'm your guide on this journey through the actions of one of the most shocking and complex murder cases South Africa has ever seen. In episode one, we covered the religious aspects of this case and arrived at the conclusion that the only role religion played in the Krugersdorp murders was to serve as a smokescreen and a tool to control. In this episode, we cover perhaps the most talked-about aspect of this case, the psychology of the offenders. Without fail, the question we always seek to answer in true crime cases is why. So often, murders seem so absolutely unnecessary. We want to know why someone would commit such a crime. What would drive them to it? In this case, I feel like the biggest question is not why, but how. How did Cecilia Stain, who, let's face it, is not the most brilliant of minds, manage to get an entire group of people to do her bidding? And I think that if the people that followed her were down and out, desperate and perhaps what we perceive to be open to influence, maybe this would be easier to understand. But they weren't. Marinda Stain was an intelligent high school teacher. She was a mom of two. And by all appearances, she'd lived a successful life up until that point. Zach Valentine was an actuary. He graduated with a degree near the top of his class. He worked for large corporates. Michaela Valentine came from a loving home. She was studying to be a pastor. The only one that we can perhaps understand having been sucked in by all of this was John Barnard, who'd been down on his luck for some time and was involved with drugs. And these are just the people that we know of that actually committed murder for her. Ria Grunewald didn't commit any crimes, but she was just as swept away by all the lies. She was a smart, successful woman who'd been trained in counselling people. Candice Rizhevek, who you saw in the documentary, was a successful graphic designer. She helped Cecilia to assemble and design the Know Your Enemy manual, 
which we now know was a copy-and-paste job from the internet. Last week, we heard Louis Averbuch talk about how, when something like this happens, we always seek the answers in the individual, and that's definitely true. But he suggested that in this case, we should seek the answers, for the most part, in the environment. So what was the environment as it relates to Electus Perdias? Well, it appears to have been very much cult-like. So to begin our inquiry into the minds of these offenders, perhaps we should first look at how a cult forms and understand the dynamics of that situation or environment. Louis Averbuch and F. H. Havenkar are perhaps the most well-placed of those I spoke with to help us understand cult psychology. Here's F. H. Havenkar with an explanation of what a cult actually is. I think the first thing that we need to understand is that we need to most probably define what a cult is. And our dilemma with that is you get various different definitions from different perspectives. You get secular definitions, you get Christian definitions, you get universal definition, you get orthodox Bible-based definitions. And that's why people many times do not understand even the word cult. And they confuse it even with the word occult. So the cultist or the cult member is part of a group with a similar doctrine or philosophy. So they form a group then, and they decide what type of practices they will follow. To, to put it easily, the occultist can do his own thing on his own, and he doesn't need to be part of a group. But the moment he becomes part of a group, there are, you know, two and three, you know, and you start forming your own philosophy or get a joint ideology, then you already have the foundation of a possibility of forming a cult. And then within cult, you also find two groupings, and we'll get to that now. So a cult is basically, and if we look at the universal definition, it will state something like it's a group with a pyramid hierarchy, where the leadership dictates the ideology, and there might even be a grimoire or a Bible or a doctrine or specific scriptures involved, or they might not be. It might just be a shared ideology. And this group then claims that they have this special knowledge, they have this special understanding or revelation, and they have the only way to power, knowledge, nirvana, higher consciousness, whatever we want to call it, to God, to Satan, to wherever if they believe in God or Satan or Nirvana or afterlife or not, it does not really matter what they believe. It's about the belief. And then they will start recruiting and reforming their followers to start following their doctrines. And here is the big difference in the two types of cults. You get a general cult or let's say a potential cult, and then you get a dangerous mind control cult. So it's two distinctions we have to make. So your dangerous cult, their main focus is to take away people's God-given right and even constitutional right to make their own decisions or ask questions. So that's immediately. If you hear that, you're not allowed to question the leadership. You're not allowed to make up your own mind. You're not allowed to free reasoning. 
you have to follow this, otherwise you're out. So it's either my way or the highway, then there's already a red light. Then I would say run and don't look back because then there is a desire to control and take away your right to choose. Then when we look at a cult, we look at a group. And in that group, they have a specific doctrine, specific belief system, specific person that they either idolize or worship or deity that they worship. So it's like a church or like a group of like-minded individuals. And, and that's important. And then in those cults, it could be a commercial cult. It could be an educational cult. It could be a psychological cult. It could be a paramilitary cult. It could be a Bible-based cult. It could be an Eastern cult. It could be a racist cult. It could be a political cult. So there's so many. These days, which we find a lot is what we call syncretistic cults. What is a syncretistic cult? It's a mixture it's an integration of various philosophies. So it might be a Christian uh, doctrine with Eastern practices, or it might be the one or the other. So they can mix it. There might be even a bit of science in with a bit, a bit of religion in, or a bit of mysticism in with a bit of science in. It could be anything. And we find that a lot these days, that people mix and match. It's nearly like a self-styling group. We need to know nobody initially sets out to become part of a destructive cult or to kill people or to do criminal activities or get involved in criminal activities. Nobody does that. Well, you might have some, but then, then there's most probably a psychiatric or psychological pathology or abnormal behavior or disorder. You do have some people that are inclined because of obviously not being compostamentous, um, not being in their full uh, right mind. But how do people get involved? Cults and any cult formation usually starts off as totally innocent with some truth in it, with some luring power in it. It could be based that luring power or that need, and it's specifically focused usually on people's needs. So it could be social needs that draw people in. And you know what? It might even st start off with total sincerity and truth. But then you, we know the saying, you know, you might be sincere, but sometimes sincerely wrong. And, and, and we find that people get involved because we are human beings. We have certain vulnerabilities and we have certain needs, be it whatever. It might be social needs. Everybody wants to have a sense of security. I want to belong somewhere. So and then I also in the place where I belong, where I feel cherished, I want to have some say in that. I want a position in that specific environment or group that I'm involved in. When I talk, people listen. And then I also have a need for worth or value, affirmation. When I am in this group where I feel cherished, where I belong, where the people understand me, they listen to me. When I say something, I actually get appraisal. I actually get affirmation. I actually... I'm told that I'm, wow, that was great, Efa. You know, that was really great. And I feel good about myself. So that's just social needs. So cults, many times, consciously or unconsciously, the structures provide those needs or for those needs. You know, there's, there's a place to belong. I am heard. We are like-minded. When I say things, I get complimented in the beginning. 
later, obviously, then I get chastised because I'm never right. And that's how they also keep them the control. But then it might also be physical needs. Some cults have started because they, they provided food or shelter or health or medication or even drugs. You get drug cults or substance abuse cults. You can start off with, and I can't say innocently, but you can start off with experimenting with drugs innocently, get caught up in addiction and end up in a group which actually focuses on cult-like behavior. So you have physical needs that they might provide for you. It might also be psychophysical needs that they provide. Then you also have the psychological needs. So they might make you feel good about yourself, self-actualization needs. They might give you a new perspective on life, a new philosophy, and that could lure you in. And that might be the initial lure that the recruiters might even use if they are an active recruiting cult. And then there's also then the supernatural, the metaphysical, or then the spiritual needs. And that is where, you know, I like what these guys say. It makes sense in line with my belief system because all of us want to believe in something. None of us can say we believe in nothing. Nobody cannot not believe. Because even if you say, I believe in nothing, you believe because you believe in nothing. So we are believing creatures as human beings. And therefore, we always have this need this craving, this desire, this void that we want to fill to satisfy our belief. And all of us are looking for the truth. All of us are looking for what is really the truth, the universal truth. And we want to associate with people with the same morals and values and belief concepts. And then we also want to sometimes worship or admire. I mean, some people worship Models. Some people worship actresses and actors in their television programs. We all have this desire to admire somebody. So in brief, what are we saying? We're saying that people don't get involved because they are bad. People don't get involved because they are senseless. They don't get involved because they are delinquent or criminal. They get involved because they are human. They need and those needs then by the cult, firstly, they provide for those needs. And then I join for the purpose of fulfilling those needs. And then they start exploiting those needs for their benefit. Then they start turning the tables. And then when I get to a point and I realize what's going on, then I'm trapped. Then it's difficult to get out because now there's a lot of factors that play a role in, in the cult retention process, you know, where I actually might even be isolated totally from everybody that does not think like the cult does. I clearly remember when I first covered this case, a fledgling podcaster with very little knowledge of the actual dynamics of the case. And I wondered how it was possible that Cecilia had managed to find just the right people. How did six people, all seemingly with murderous intent, find their way to one another? I figured it had to have been the most horrible coincidence ever, that these specific six people should meet. In the two years since I first covered this case, I've learned that 
at least where true crime is concerned, there are very few true coincidences. Here's Louis Averbuch to tell us more about cults and the psychology behind them. My name is Louis Averbach. I'm a clinical psychologist in private practice. I also specialize in uh, forensic expert witness testimony, and I have a background in the police services where I did research on the profiling of violent criminals. The case evokes themes of control and following, and the theme of religion plays a major role. So we could probably refer to the group as a religious cult. And religious cults have a lot of similarities all, all over the world, of which the biggest similarity is the, the existence of an all-powerful leader, almost a messianic figure who's got special insight into the truth and into how things really work. So religious cults have a doctrine which agrees with the doctrine of the leader. That's what cults are about. It's, it's about serving the aim of the one person, the leader, who has absolute power. So we basically see religious cults acting out the, the secret private wishes of an individual. And religion is a popular theme to base a cult in. One gets a lot of different cults. One gets commercial cults and cults based on interaction or activities. But most cults are basically sort of religious in nature. Most cults having a special message from a special messenger. And once one buys into the special message, everything you do from there is basically serving the right path serving the special path that only you know. Obviously, you know it through the leader, but you are also special as a follower because you've been chosen to understand special things. It elevates your meaning of life. It elevates this, the, the reason for your existence. In the late 1960s and early 1970s, there was a murderous cult-like group in the United States called the Manson Family. The group, headed up by Charles Manson, killed multiple people at his bidding. Just like Cecilia Stain, it's believed that Manson never once laid his own hand on a murder weapon. Yet he was found guilty of murder, because it could be proven that he had knowingly instigated the murders. Just like Electus Perdias. The members of the Manson family were not down-and-out people with no way of understanding what they were doing. They were, for the most part, young people from middle-class homes. Many were university students. Louis spoke to this assumption that people that join cults are down on their luck. The common perception is that all people who join cults are lonely, ridden with psychological issues, etc., etc. That is not the case. For the vast majority of cult members, there's actually nothing wrong with them. There's a lot of research on this. And, and it's like almost only 5 to 6% of, of cult members universally demonstrate major psychological problems prior to joining a cult. 
a lot of normal people join cults. Remember, cults don't want and don't recruit people with too deep psychological problems or physical handicaps. They, they represent a loss rather than a gain. They can't contribute financially or can't contribute talent to the cause. So we're not saying that the people who joined Cecilia and murdered on her behalf acted normally or were normal without pathology. No, there must have been a lot of pathology underlying. But these are people that could, could and did function very well in, in society. But there's that underlying predeposition that's, that's waiting to be triggered. And that can then be triggered later by, by a cult figure, like a Cecilia, like a, the boss. So we would assume at least that people joining these cults at least had some kind of underlying need to belong, at least that some kind of underlying self-image problem of some kind, seeking an identity maybe, probably were more natural followers than leaders probably lacked meaning in their, in their lives or wanted to feel validate that they functioned very well pre-Cecilia. So this is a very interesting concept, the catalyst. All of the unfulfilled needs and pathologies that we saw come to horrifying fruition in these people had to have already existed. They were already growing within them, like a pool of petrol, slowly seeping out, wider and wider. And Cecilia Stain was the spark that ignited it. And when those needs are triggered and satisfied from there on, then we can move into a new dimension where we can commit murder. But they probably wouldn't have committed murder before having met Cecilia. The, the catalyst was necessary for the whole recipe to come to fulfillment, so to speak. And really, anyone could have been that catalyst. I think we see this phenomenon in couples who kill as well. The unfulfilled need exists in both, and separately, they may never commit the same type of crimes. But when they find their way to one another, they become each other's catalyst for chaos. And that's obviously what we understand from the outside. Cecilia isn't that special. That behavior could have been facilitated by somebody else as well. But also then we have to say in the same, in the same breath that it takes quite a special type of person to be able to pull that off. For F.H. Havengar, he had a unique view on this case as it happened. Through his work, he is intimately familiar with the workings of cult-like situations. He also knew Ria Grunewald and had trained her to counsel people coming out of ritualistic abuse situations. And then he had to watch as she fell victim to the very thing he deeply understood to be a coercive control situation. As I said in the beginning, you know, the, the initial onset, the initial motive was sincere. 
But then along the line, Cecilia became one of the lecturers. So what does that mean? So typical start of the potential of putting her on a pedestal, she's becoming a leader. And then people started looking up to her and she started playing the game. I was a witch of 42nd generation witch. I have seven doctor's degrees. So I still remember the phone call that I made to Ria at that stage. She said, Ria, can you just explain to me how a person of Cecilia's age can have seven doctor's degrees? That's quite an achievement. You know, I'm impressed. Can you please ask her to let me know in what and where? And then suddenly Cecilia couldn't come and speak to me. And, and, and so she started avoiding. And that was a red light. And, and it's then when she started isolating. And that was immediately already the danger signs of cult behavior. And then we went and we said to Ria, Ria, please, we worried. Don't. I personally sat uh, across the table from Ria. And it's so sad. Said Ria. And that was more than, I think, three or five years before the first murder. We said, Ria, we cannot agree with this. Please, we care about you guys. We cannot agree with this. You are on dangerous territory. You are busy isolating. It's typically the, the strategy of cultists. You know, they first isolate you, they deceive you, and then they destroy you. And that we're seeing that because you're not allowed to talk to us. When you talk to us, you even become, you have symptoms of paranoia because you say they listening in, they can hear. So, well, you don't have to worry about that, right? We can sort that. And, and you see that slowly coming in. The foundation being, a religious organization, and it could have been, and I'm not focusing now on the religion, I'm saying in that case, the religion was the need. The need within the religious philosophy to do good and not harm. But then it was hijacked because the people, the leadership of the group started isolating and they had no check and balance anymore. They were a law until to themselves. And that's the typical foundations that we saw of a dangerous cult forming. And that's why we said, sorry, Ria, we cannot agree with this because, and this was my words for Ria at that meeting. My words were, Ria, this can cause people their lives. Don't play with this. I still remember I went to that meeting with a flying squad vehicle and I was in my official capacity also wander. It was in Krugersdorp. Little did I know that that meeting took place in a little cafeteria just under the flats where Cecilia stayed. I didn't know that at that stage because Cecilia never wanted to speak to me. Actually, Ria did then make various attempts to get her to me. But then suddenly Ria would phone me and say, listen, we're on our way from Krugersdorp, but there is now uh, Cecilia said there's now a curse or a thing on, on Cecilia that if she goes beyond 20 kilometer radius, then a death curse will be activated on her. And she can't do that to Cecilia. And then I realized there's emotional enmeshment. There's not objectivity. You know, so you hear all these things and you try and say, but Ria, you guys say you are Christians. You guys say you trust God. Where is your God now? 
Why, why don't you just trust God to protect her? Yeah, but this and say, no, Ria, you need to now decide, is your God bigger than your fear or your fear bigger than your God? You choose. And they never came. You know, they never came. And, and, and then I tried to go there. And then there was always an excuse. I even went so far as trying to, to under an alias name, send an email to Cecilia and try to communicate. And she started communicating with me. And then at a stage, I asked the question on, um, interesting about your doctorate degrees. Maybe you should tell me more. That's interesting. I'm really impressed. And I think she actually, I think I blew my own cover then. Um, so she stopped responding to me. So we tried a lot of things. It's, it's really sad. It's, it's sad. But that just shows you how strong these philosophies, how strong this, these processes are. But now the balance started shifting. The allegiance started shifting. And you had this whole shift. And then the psychopathology and everything started kicking in. Then you had this whole process, what I, I think, where now it was them versus us, the typical cult thinking. You know, we right, they wrong. And you had these two factions. And now the one would see the other one as fallen angels. And that's just a metaphor. So the one would see the other one as the enemy. And, and then they started thinking in that paradigm. And when they started cognizing or thinking in that paradigm, now the end justifies the means. And now they started, you know, now anything could go. And now those who followed had still some needs being fulfilled for whatever reason or whatever level by Cecilia would then obviously gather around Cecilia. And those who still were loyal to to Ria would gather around Ria, but because we have this enemy enemy now um, and they have totally different mindset and totally different methodology it becomes very intricate and very complex. Um, so this is not something that the public should try to just reason out simplistically. Never, never try to think that there's only one cause, one factor, one variable. So we see that typically, you know, and that process happens with stage one is we deprogram them. When they come to the Electus Perdeus group now away from overcomers in Christ, first of all, Cecilia had to deprogram them, confuse them, tell them everything that you believed was a lie. Ria faked it all. Ria is the evil one. So they, she confused them. And then when they said, yeah, no, no, we agree and said, right, so we need to start over. You need to be born again, basically. So in our group, so they, she gives them new positions. She gives them positions again, security, position and value. She gives them a new cult identity. Each one gets a specific function of responsibility so that they feel good. They have this aim to, to achieve, this goal to achieve. And then when they accept that new group identity, which is only known to the group, not allowed to tell everybody else, isolate them from all other influences that are not like-minded, then she starts reprogramming. So they give them new goals, new covenants, new worldviews, new principles, values, perceptions, even new morals. And then, as I already said, now the end justifies the means. Um, 
And then it could be anything. You know, you can use them. They like puppets. You can use them to bring money. You can use them to murder. You can exploit them on various levels because you use the mind control methods, knowingly or unknowingly. We don't know if this was carefully planned or just part of normal human cult behavior. And I say normal human cult behavior. So obviously it's abnormal, but within the context of a cult, that is the normal norm. And, and for them, they don't see anymore. At this stage, they are principled philosophically and religiously and all morally, they are blinded. They are blind followers because when they would ask a question and Cecilia cannot answer it, she would return it and say, so are you doubting? Are you in or are you out? So she would start overriding those questions. She would use things like disinhibition techniques where they, she breaks down their resistance. She would use things like love bombing, giving them hugs when they do what she wants, but then also forcing them to confess their mistakes when they didn't succeed in what she wanted. She would use verbal abuse, physical abuse, might, I don't know, but she would most probably definitely, definitely use verbal abuse. And she creates this nearly like the abused victim syndrome that, that I feel I can't live without this group because nobody out there understands. Nobody out there will ever accept me. And if I go out, people will judge me. I feel guilty. And actually what they do in that cult is then they just close the whole world to you. Not my parents, not my loved ones. Nobody will understand. The only people who understand, the only people will accept, the only people that will, will be there for me in times of crisis is the group. And that is a typical cult. And that is a dangerous cult because you are trapped. You are controlled. You have no choice. You have no rights. You're not allowed to question the leadership. The leadership is the only ones who hear from God or the only ones who know the way, the only ones who are right. All the rest, any other group that are not like-minded are the enemy. It's us versus them. We have the answer. We have the truth. We have everything you need. If you leave us, we will persecute you either by some form of spiritual attacks or even physical um, indoctrination or physical harassment. And the, the cult members start living in this fear and guilt, uncertainty, but I cannot, but I should, but I shouldn't. So they totally confused. And the only one who can clarify their confusion, the leader, because the leader knows the best. I couldn't help but notice as FH was speaking about the dynamics of this cult development that there are so many similarities to the way that we know domestic partners behave when they are attempting to coercively control and abuse their partners. I asked FH if the same principles would apply in a one-on-one -on -one control and abuse situation. For sure, the dynamics will be nearly 100% the same. Obviously, it will just, you'll have to look at it within that specific context. They will exploit the needs. They will exploit the vulnerabilities. They will then start dominating, controlling, same principles. And then they would obviously turn the tables. 
I hit you because I love you. I hurt you because I love you. And if I hear that enough, it becomes the reality. That's why your, your, abused, your abused victims within those abusive relationships later on do not, they don't have a self-image anymore. They do not have self-esteem. They do not have self-confidence. So it's easy for us on the outside to stand and say, yeah, but that, it's ridiculous. Why would somebody stay in something like that? Dear sir, dear ma'am, there's much more at play. You cannot stand from sideline and even try to understand how it feels for that person. Jana Marx also has some interesting insights into the dynamics within this group, at first at least, without even realizing it. She watched this group in court from day one, and some of her memories of how they behaved are fascinating. At the time when the Progress of Killings became public, I was a court journalist. I was working mostly in the High Court in Johannesburg. So I didn't attend the case from the very beginning while it was still in the lower courts. I started to attend the case after it was transferred to the High Court. So usually when I attend a case for the first time or first day, I try to get the indictment beforehand, just read through it, have an idea what's going on there. And that's exactly what happened in this case. But I was covering several cases and cases get postponed. So you will cover a case and next day you'll go to another case in another court. And the day after that, you'll go back to the first, you know, the first case that you started with that week or whatever. So Cecilia, so the case of the Stop Cult Killings was one of the many cases that I was actually covering at that stage. So I got the indictment the previous night, I read through it, and I, and I went to court. And I just walked into court like a normal other court day. Nothing was um, strange. I realized that there was just a bit of a more intricate story. It's not really that the usual story that I'm used to, and um, one accused, maybe one or two killings. There was something more to this, but you know, it didn't really hit me what the extent of this case is on that first day when I actually walked into court. At the beginning, Cecilia was chatty. Everyone was chatty. And Marcel and Zach, they were making this inside jokes. They were, and they would point at people and giggle. And it was, it was a very, it was also a very strange setup because usually you'll get, you know, the accused in the dark, very stern looking. You don't, they don't like the idea of being there, of course. And Cecilia, it was just as if she's, you know, not really aware of what's going on. It's just like this little party that's continuing there on the dock. And as the child progressed, and this is where it started to get interesting, uh, they started to turn on one another. So this chatty and giggling and everything that happened during breaks in court, that started to just cipher out as the trial progressed. And, you know, physically, they sat like close to one another so they can chat in between. But as the trial progressed, they actually moved, physically moved from <laughs> away from, from one another on the bench. At one stage, Zach, um, he was so angry at um, Cecilia. He literally sat on, on the very side of that bench. I literally thought he was going to like fall off or, you know, um, lose his balance or something because that's how it went at that stage. They had planned everything. They spent a lot of time together while they, uh, they drove to court in the mornings or whatever. So, they could actually sit and plan, you know, what are we going to say? What are we not going to say? 
it's a different ball game when you actually sit in court and you realize, okay, goodness, my, you know, my freedom is on the line here. And if I do what she tells me to do, there's a chance that I might lose this freedom. And it's every man for himself thing. It was strange to me that they were so relaxed. And later on, I actually learned that they had this whole plan of how they're going to handle this case. So no one there was really worried about where this was going because Cecilia had it all worked out for them. So it was, that was, it was quite strange. I haven't seen accused so relaxed before in cases, especially murder. I mean, this is, this is a series of um, murders. And the chattiness and the jokes, that, that, yeah, it bothered me. It was really this big joke for Cecilia, especially Cecilia. Cecilia's demeanor also changed a bit, though. She became this expression of, what the hell? You know, as if everything is super surprising, as if she's never heard anything, any of the testimony in her life. Her face was a story in itself, and I actually sat in court in a corner at a side where I can actually watch her throughout the whole trial and during the, everyone's testimony. And that woman has like a gazillion facial expressions. It's amazing to see how she's, you know, how she's actively expressing herself. But the surprise is this, this weird surprise she had that stuck. Later, she lost the jokes, but she was so surprised. I also asked Captain Ben Boyson how, from his law enforcement perspective, he thinks that Cecilia managed to pull off this control. Yeah, I, I think she's just a very, very good con artist. So I think if she went right through school and went further in life, whatever she needed or wanted to do in life, she would have done it. She's not stupid. She's very, very clever. And also by using this Satanism and children, you know, all of our people has got a soft spot for children. And as soon as you get people involved and, you, and you're talking about children being killed and children who's going to be killed and, and stuff like that, you take people's minds. And by doing this at the end of the day, and by these people living basically 24-7 with her, at the end of the day, she manipulated them so much that they start believing in all the stuff that she told them. And that's why she had that bond over them to let them do stuff without thinking what they were doing. I think after she told them to do stuff and, and they get home and when they're alone, and they, I think they thought by themselves, you know, is this really the truth? Why did I do it? As soon as you did something that is wrong, a person who is in charge of you then has got more power over you. So the next time you can't tell him no, because you already did something that was wrong. So, and that's why they went on with this killing spree and stuff. I, I think she also manipulated them by threatening them at the end of the day, saying, listen, I did nothing. You did the killings and you did the robberies and you did this. So if you stop now, or phone the police or something. She had some power over them that they couldn't get out of this situation. I think that these insights are so interesting because it really just shows how deeply these people believed in Cecilia. 
they really thought she had this covered. At first, they didn't believe for a second that she was going to let them go to jail for this. Like, the judge was just going to hear their story and go, well, that sounds legit, and let them walk. And then, as Yana says, the split started. One by one, people started to realise that they'd been duped. Marinda, of course, held on to her story, and still does. Zach just went with, I don't know, and it's everyone else's fault. I think this understanding of the group dynamic and how cults form really gives us a much better understanding of how this might have happened. But a group, after all, is still made up of individuals. And I think the psychology of each individual is just as interesting and informative. Zach Valentine is one of the offenders that I really wanted to wrap my head around. In the documentary, Louis Averbuch says that Zach strikes him as the type of person that was waiting to be controlled. And I must say, that blew my mind a bit. Because when I look at Zach, his past, his crimes, and the way he conducted himself in court, he actually came across as really together and almost arrogant. So this person that I pictured him as was difficult to reconcile with the type of person Louis was talking about. I asked him to expand on this comment a bit. Well, he allowed himself to be totally controlled by Cecilia. And we have to remember that Cecilia doesn't have magical powers. The answer is doesn't lie in how Cecilia managed to motivate him. The answer lies in why did he allow himself to be manipulated? Uh, it could not have started with Cecilia. Uh, a lot of the explanation of why people go along also lies in dependent personality traits. People want to be leaded. People want to be told what to do. A lot of people, not all people, but a lot of people who exhibit dependent traits prefer to give over and to let somebody else decide. A lot of the Bonnie and Clyde type of murders throughout history shows that there's, there's normally one active party in a duo like that, and the other one would never have initiated something like that but is happy to follow. And I can only speculate that there must have been an element of dependency, dependent personality traits on Zach's side, together with other psychological issues maybe, but we all have issues. But dependency, definitely, that's a speculation, would have played a major role in, in why he just went with Cecilia. Remember, Zach comes over as an intelligent guy. And Cecilia, with all due respect, doesn't come over as, as very uh, cognitively powerful. She just comes over as very shrewd and manipulative. But uh, most people wouldn't have fallen for, for her tricks. So something overrode Zach's intellect or cognitive abilities, which tells us it, it probably hung uh, by, by a thin thread anyway. I mean, there seems to be a bit of sadistic tendencies. He seems to have joyfully 
at least or without without caring acted in in these violent murders even his own wife must be a lot of uh, i would suspect i would strongly suspect a lot of psychopathic tendencies himself you know uh, his popularity uh, socially could have been manipulation from his side and again one can be you know if you're a soldier and you're led to believe that you fight for your country and for a good cause and you kill people, that doesn't make you a psychopath. Normally, you don't enjoy it. You just condone it. But in this case, it didn't take much for Zach, for instance, to gleefully engage in, in murder and in, in violent murder. And I'm not talking about shooting people. I'm talking up close and personal. It cannot only be because he believed in the cause. Remember later on, they just killed for money. Zach and Michaela's relationship was also interesting to me. In the video clips we saw of them, they seemed so happy and loving. But then we're watching that with the knowledge that Zach Valentine orchestrated the murder of his wife. He drugged her knowing that he was leaving her helpless for Miranda and Marcel to brutally stab to death. And then when he came home and found her mangled body, he showed almost no emotion. So really, at least in my mind, he could never have really loved her the way so-called normal people love. It's impossible. In the documentary, I also heard for the first time that Michaela was a rape survivor and had struggled with substance abuse in the past. And that got me wondering if perhaps Zach somehow chose her, even if subconsciously, because of that. We know that he wasn't involved with Cecilia when they met, but we know from what Louis has told us that there had to have been this pathology in him before that. Cecilia just switched it on. So how much of a role did Michaela's past struggles play in their relationship dynamic, I wondered? It definitely would have played into their relationship. It cannot not have played into their the relationship. One is not sure how. One can only speculate. It also doesn't implicate that Michaela had severe psychological problems. We have to bear in mind that she's, the, she's basically the only one that, that had the presence of mind to realize that things are going seriously wrong and try to get out of it. So one could maybe accept that she wasn't all that dependent type of person. We don't know. Obviously, we, we have no idea how Zach's inner psychology worked. One is left with the question, how did it happen that a normal guy was turned around to act in such a specific fashion. The answer to that would be that Zach could not have been a normal guy. Normal people don't do that. Um, so although we don't know Zach's background, we can almost be sure that there the must have been pathology waiting to be activated. You know, a lot of people function very well in society in certain pockets. Captain Ben Boyson also has an interesting insight into Zach Valentine. But, you know, also 
Zach was not that kind of person. If I speak to him and my son and my son's friends are all the same age. And some of my son's friends was with Zach friends and was with him in school. And if I speak to them and, and I tell you about Zach, he, he was a nice guy. He likes fishing. He was not aggressive. You know, it's difficult to put your mind there that you hear this person, um, how good this person is. And then how can a person like that turn evil so easy? So I think we now have a bit of a better understanding of Zach Valentine. So what about the so-called mastermind, Cecilia Stain? We've already started to get a bit of a glimpse into the inner workings of her mind through Louis and FH's insights into the psychology of cult leaders. But I think that what struck me the most about her was her behaviour in court. If you've watched any of that footage, you would probably have been as aghast at her behaviour as I was. She was arrogant, dismissive, and really did not act like a person that was on trial for 11 murders. I asked Louis if he could give us some of his takeaways from her behaviour on the stand. What struck me in terms of her testimony is that she testified like a seasoned attorney. She just stuck to her story. She didn't flinch. She didn't get upset. In actual fact, it appeared as if the questioning and the cross-questioning border. Most people get nervous under cross-questioning, especially when when you're facing a murder trial. She just stuck to her guns. That's it. Even when she was in the corner. Almost that arrogant, you won't understand attitude of, of it's not me, it's, I don't know. I don't know what, what it's your problem, it's not mine. From her perspective, she, she didn't crack on her testimony. And it, it, it seemed like an everyday activity to her. And I wondered if, for him, this spoke to some level of narcissistic or psychopathic tendencies. It has to speak to psychopathic tendencies. You cannot orchestrate so many murders and senseless murders and violent murders of other people if you actually have sympathy or empathy with them. There must be very little empathy, very little sympathy, very little insight into into the impact. And that, unfortunately, one cannot escape. That translates directly to strong psychopathic tendencies. And psychopaths don't get stressed. That is one of the core uh, attributes of of people with psychopathic tendencies, is the absence of fear. Not all psychopaths are good manipulators, but people who are good manipulators and who are psychopaths are brilliant manipulators because that's what they do for a living. That's what they do full-time, scanning the environment, scanning behavior, thinking three steps ahead of one thing and one thing only. How can I turn people or a situation to my advantage? All psychopaths do that. Cecilia also did it. Um, She just did it in a spectacular way or in a unique way or in a very uh, observable, unacceptable way. 
And I don't think I'm the only one who was pretty amazed at the intricate web of lies she managed to weave, and wondered what she may have achieved if those abilities had been directed towards something positive. Louis doesn't feel the world probably missed out on much positivity from Cecilia, though. Well, you know, I'm not that sure about it. That That's also a common perception. Look, one could say she could possibly done well in sales. But bear in mind that she and the people like her, messianic cult figures, only can influence so many people. Most people don't fall for it. If you look at all her manipulations, uh, strategies, with all due respect, it, it wasn't that well thought through. Most people wouldn't fall for it. She probably would not like this, but achieved a lot in a short time, but with very little people. She will not be able to uh, amass 50 people under her. She's, she's just not sharp enough. Jana Marx has her own view on Cecilia's capabilities. Now, I say if there's one thing we can give Cecilia credit for is being a brilliant researcher. Because, I mean, I think she did the best Google searches of anyone I've ever done. So that is a better understanding of Zach Valentine and Cecilia Stain. John Barnard is not really a psyche I've delved into, because I think it's easier to see how he got caught up in all of this. His betrayal of the mayors is an interesting aspect, though, and we'll discuss that as well as his connection with the family in episode four. The other three offenders are Marinda Stain and her two children, LaRue and Marcel. I considered discussing their psychology in this episode, too, but to be honest, I think the mother-child connection deserves its own episode. Because perhaps one of the most devastating aspects of this case is the way Marinda Stain betrayed her children's trust. So that aspect will be discussed in episode three. We started this episode with the question, how? How did these people get pulled into this situation? And I think we have a pretty good understanding of that now. Louis Averbuch, though, warns against speculating about the psychological motives in this case. From a lay perspective, people speculate on why. Why did Cecilia do it? Why did Miranda do this? Why, why did Zach do it? And if people commit unnatural acts, there are always explanations for it. Some people, and I'm, I'm talking about rational people, and I've heard people say this, that no normal person can do it. It's impossible. Nobody will ever do it. There must have been demonic forces at work, for example. Because we cannot, for the life of us, imagine how it's possible. And the answer lies, in, uh, the answer in understanding lies in accepting that there is pathology. There is something wrong with the person that does it. There definitely is something wrong. It can be temporary. It can be long-lasting. It can be due to physiological reasons. It can be due to psychological reasons. But it, there is something wrong. 
As interesting as it is to hear all of the insights into the psychology of these offenders, I think that there is something important that we can take from this. The offenders in this case were not really all that different from anyone else. And the knowledge that we've gained here around how these situations develop can help us, if we allow it, to avoid being controlled in this way ourselves, whether that's in a group situation or in a one-on-one relationship. I'd like to close off this episode with an analogy from F.H. Havengar about coercive control situations. Each listener, I'll tell you a story. This is how any cult group works. And if this is what you remember and you see it, run. Run, forest, run. When wild dogs hunt, they see the antelope standing in a crowd. They see the antelope being part of a caring community, being part of many people around them that can be sound soundboards, objective, realistic soundboards. And then they realize, but there are power in groups. There are power in unity. So their main purpose is to bring confusion. So what they would do is the main group of the the wild dogs would stand aside and they would only send one or two dogs in to just the only purpose is to run into that group of antelope and then scatter them just to cause confusion. Then the whole herd would start running and then they would look which of those antelope, which one of those buck falls behind or separates from the group. Then the bigger group or the pack of the the, the dogs will come and they will encircle isolate that weak one or that isolated one they would encircle them so that that antelope that buck wherever he or she goes will not be able to escape one of them and then they will close in they will close the circle and they will come in for the kill Thank you for listening to episode two of Devil's Dorp, the official companion podcast to the Showmax original series, Devil's Dorp. Remember to give us a follow on the podcast app you're using to listen. And if you're enjoying this content and you'd like to see more companion podcasts in the future, please reach out to Showmax on their social media platforms and let them know. Next time on Devilsdorp, the podcast. Marinda Stain professed to enjoy killing. But was she really a cold-blooded killer? Or did she just need to appear that way? LaRue and Marcel were children when all this started, seemingly led astray by their own mother, the one person they should have been able to trust. In episode 3 of Devil's Dorp, the podcast, we delve into the parenting aspect of this case. We also speak with Marizga Kutza, who is a journalist that fell in love with LaRue Stain.